For those who are uh, visiting with us, we're doing a, maybe sort of a unique kind of a sermon series where the congregation has submitted topics of things they wanted to hear sermons on, and so I'm working through most of those topics. I think I'm doing all of them, actually, but uh, we've got quite a few. We're at number 23 today, and uh, this, is, this one is called Embarrassment. The trouble it causes and how to deal with it. I thought that was a very, very interesting topic. I've put it under the category that we're in now. I've organized them in different categories in the category of Christian living. So this is the third sermon in that category. So you might ponder that for a little bit. Of course, I always have to do this whenever we get, when I get a, one of these topics. And Okay, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about embarrassment? And, and, and how to deal with it. And you might, you know, go to your concordance, look up the word, and if you use the New King James like I do, you won't find a whole lot of occurrences of the word embarrassment. Isn't there a couple of times, but uh, they're not necessarily always real significant occurrences. But as you ponder it further, you begin to realize that the Bible actually has quite a lot to say about what falls under that category of embarrassment. And the word that the Bible uses, at least the New King James, some versions, of course, differ, but it uses the word shame or ashamed, that sort of thing, quite a lot. Because when we think about bearing shame, okay, that's something that's a common theme in the Bible. We even talk about how Jesus bore shame for us when he was on the cross. And it's a very significant thing. Sometimes our culture downplays shame a little bit, even more than we should. It's a a real thing. You find it a lot in the Proverbs, too, when you go through the Scripture. Now, for our Scripture reading, we had earlier the passage from Isaiah where the people were trusting in the wrong thing. They were trusting in Egypt, and it said that they would become ashamed because they were trusting in Egypt. Like, we were stupid. We trusted in the wrong thing. We're ashamed of what we did. We were also wrong. We were sinful. And so, you know, we were humbled by, by our sin. And then for our scripture reading now, I have chosen 2 Timothy chapter 1. And this speaks of being ashamed when we shouldn't be ashamed. You see the contrast. The one we read in the Old Testament was a time when they should have been ashamed. Because you trusted in the wrong thing. You did wrong. You should be ashamed of that. But this one in Timothy is, on the other hand, where we shouldn't be ashamed. So we're going to be looking at both of those as we go through this topic, of course, in a a general way. But I'm going to have this for our reading now. So give attention. This is God's holy word, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, in your notes, I just started from verse 6, but I'm going to read from verse 1. Here is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy." When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. 
And now verse 6, where your notes on the handout begin. Verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep keep what I have committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus." That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant mercy to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. There we end the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. So embarrassment, the problems it causes is what I was asked to speak on. Certainly are a lot of problems that can be caused by embarrassment. And the passage that we just read. Paul admonishes Timothy, verse 8, not to be embarrassed or ashamed. It's, uh, he says, therefore, do not be ashamed of me, of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. The testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. What is that talking about? The testimony of the Lord refers to the word of God that has been entrusted to us. That's the testimony of who God is, what he's done, and so on. It's very easy for us to be embarrassed about things that are written in God's word. And that's what we're being warned against here. The gospel itself is offensive to religious people who are trying to make themselves pleasing to God by their own works. Of course, there's a lot of people who name the name of Christ that actually that's their mode. They aren't really trusting in Christ for salvation. They're not really regenerate, but they're trusting in their good works and um, or maybe their good heart or maybe the sacrifices that they have made for God somehow or their devotion to some cause or their worship that they do worship rituals and things, whatever way. Uh, And it's offensive to them when they hear that there is only a way. The only way of salvation is through Christ and they're not good enough. For God, what I'm not good enough for God? What do you mean? They get they get angry and cross, and uh, they're sinners that need to be saved, and that the only way they can be saved is by 
by trusting in Jesus who is given as a sacrifice for our sins and offering for our sin. It's a message that rankles people who are the most religious in that sense. Now, we should be religious too. That means that we're devoted to God. But people who are devoted in their religious way to God by works are the ones who get very offended and they bitterly resent being told that all of your efforts are not good enough for God. Proof of this can be seen by Paul's situation when he wrote this. Where was he? He was in prison. Why was he in prison? Because of the gospel that he was preaching. It offended people and it caused them to put him in prison. They didn't think the gospel was such a nice idea. To people who are not religious, though, the gospel is also offensive in a certain way, and they look at it many times as something that's foolish. Sometimes they're not even as offended by it as people who are quite religious are. To them, it's more just stupid. And uh, until God opens a sinner's heart, they think that anyone that believes it is foolish and stupid. And that can embarrass us, too, if we're around people that are kind of you know, smart people that uh, maybe, maybe they're kind of academic inclined or maybe they're just people that think they're, they're clever in various ways. And, you know, they speak about, you know, how stupid it is to believe that God made the world, you know, or whatever. And we can, we can pull back and, and get a little bit mealy-mouthed. When, when we are embarrassed by the testimony of our Lord, it leads to all sorts of serious problems like that. It's impossible, really, to even estimate all the harm that has been done by being embarrassed about what God has said. The very gospel itself can be twisted and set aside because of embarrassment. I have talked to people before that said that they don't want to talk about hell in their evangelism. Okay, so they're trying to spread the gospel, but they don't want to talk about hell because that would turn people off and it would hinder them from coming to Christ. And so their, their embarrassment causes them to actually cover up part of the message and the testimony of God. And it leaves people in their delusions that they don't need a savior, except in a sense, maybe to help them be a better person. But they don't really need a savior to die to atone for their sin, which is, of course, the very essence of the gospel. So the gospel can be lost. And you can go to many churches today where the gospel is not really preached they did. I remember going to a church, a huge church in Atlanta, when I was visiting family there. And the minister said, you know, we're not, we're not sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he said, you know, Jesus wants to befriend us and he's not, uh, there's no judgment, there's no condemnation to anyone. And he wasn't talking about when we believe, he was talking about just, in, he was denying the need for a crucified Savior. So we leave people to believe that there is no righteous anger in God and we put them in a situation where they can't really seek to be saved if they follow what we have said. Our embarrassment also can come about God's law and it can distort the testimony of God, the beautiful testimony of God about the way that that we're to live. The way he has for us to live is beautiful, but sometimes the world thinks it's ugly And then we can be embarrassed because of that contrast that they won't like it because of what it actually says is beautiful and what actually is beautiful. God knows because he's the creator. So it makes us embarrassed maybe to 
remove those who engage in immoral relationships by church discipline. Somebody that is, um, is uh, having sex outside of marriage. And we say, oh, you know, people would not understand if we discipline in our church for something like that. Or it causes us to say that the desire for such relationships is not sinful. You hear that a lot. If I have a desire for relationship, sexual relationships that God has prohibited, then, oh, well, you know, that's not really sinful to have the desire. No, it is sinful to have a desire to do something that's contrary to God. We need to repent not only of our, our actions, but also of our lustful desires. It makes us embarrassed to declare that the breaking of the Sabbath is sinful. That's one that is often people are embarrassed to say. It makes us embarrassed to say that it's wrong to worship God in ways that he has not commanded because not everybody is going to be pleased with that. We're embarrassed to declare things that are important in the scriptures like that God created the world in six days. We're embarrassed about that and we end up with some kind of a, a weird thing where you've got people, you've got death before the fall. You've got a world that's in all kinds of confusion and conflict and it doesn't work out at all with what the scripture reveals about how we fell or that God destroyed the whole world by a flood. We, we are shy to, to put that forward in, in certain circles. Our refusal to accept the biblical order that God has designed for our homes can leave our homes disordered, unbiblically ordered. It leaves children in the world without the biblical portrait of Christ represented by a husband who loves his wife the way Christ loves the church and who, who leads his family sacrificially for their sake, the way that Christ does the church, and, and without the testimony of the wife that is to be a, a picture of the, the bride of Christ, of the, the church that submits to him and, and wants to have harmony with him, wants to live together the unity of uh, as one rather than two to be one walking together in the ways of of the lord cheerfully uniting with obedient submission that is godly it puts women also in roles that god has not designed for them like being a pastor of a church or an elder or something like that or going into combat you can see how paul in exhorting timothy not to be ashamed tells them in verse 13 through 14 to hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. So see, that's in the context of this passage. Don't be ashamed of this testimony. Hold on to that pattern of sound words that you have been given. And that likely even would refer to the confession of our faith, like the, the doctrines that we bring together when we say um, Jesus Christ is Lord, for instance. That's a conf- confessional statement. And they had such statements in the early church, especially. They didn't even have the scriptures. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so there, it was when this was written, but there were, there were creeds and confessions and things that they had, had come up with. And he says, hold on to, the, to those truths that have been entrusted to you, that pattern of sound words, and don't like pull off part of it because, 
Oh, the Jews don't like this. Oh, the Greeks don't like this. Oh, these Christians over here, they don't like that. And you're moving everything out. You're going to get away from the word of God. He, Timothy was to hold it. He was to love it. He was to preach it. He was to love the Savior who revealed it, not to suppress it with embarrassment. Our embarrassment actually makes us cowards. It makes us compromisers in a sinful way. It keeps people from going into the ministry even sometimes because they're embarrassed to be able to herald the word of God. It keeps us from going to a solid church. We go to a compromising church because maybe, oh, well, my family wouldn't like those people hold to the word of God too much over there. Or, uh, you know, we, we, we don't speak favorably of godly, faithful ministers because we don't want to be associated with them. That's what Paul's talking about, that they were ashamed of me and my imprisonment. Okay, do I, do I really want, I'm going to distance myself from that guy a little bit because he's been rejected so much. I'm going to have a, a kind of a, a more acceptable approach over here. That Paul, you know, he's a little bit rough and they, they pull away like that. Paul speaks twice about that matter, being ashamed to be associated with him as a minister for upholding the truth. In verse 8, he says not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, and he adds, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. So there was a real cost when Paul was saying these things. We weren't talking about that somebody doesn't like it. We're talking about you go to prison. And Paul says, don't, don't shy away from this. In verse 15, he speaks of those who had turned away, and he names two of them by name who have done so. And in verse 16, he speaks of Nesiphorus, on the other hand, who was not ashamed to be associated with him. He showed up publicly to minister to him, to bring things that he needed and things like that. He'd show his face and they'd say, everybody would see him. They would know, okay, that guy is a supporter of this man that we put in prison. Being embarrassed by the gospel is extremely destructive. But there is another kind of embarrassment that is also destructive. I don't think I could say it was equally destructive, but it is destructive. And I mentioned that there were kind of two different ways of uh, being ashamed. You can be ashamed about things that you ought to be ashamed of, like you shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. You, that, that's, that's something that you should not be. But then there's other kinds of, um, of, of shame that uh, are, are, are things that, uh, where you shouldn't be ashamed of that. Uh, well, I, well, the gospel is what you shouldn't be ashamed of, but there's the other kind like the, they had in, um, with, uh, in Isaiah that we read about where they were, would, would have shame for going down to trusting in Egypt. So there, there is embarrassment that comes from an inappropriate desire to uh, keep our faults, our failings, our sins, or mistakes, our weaknesses, and our ignorance to keep them hidden from others. Nobody likes to draw attention to such things. When you messed up, you're ashamed of that. You don't want people to know. And of course, that's normal to, to not desire that, to be publicly shamed or embarrassed. But our desire to protect ourselves, what we're going to talk about now, our desire to protect ourselves can become inordinate. Like we don't want, we, we hide things when we shouldn't. We're ashamed of things when we shouldn't be so ashamed. Uh, Proverbs 20 verse 13 declares, 
He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So what is it that causes us to hide our sin when we've sinned and we don't want to admit it? It's our pride, isn't it? We don't want to look bad. We don't want to draw attention to our sin. So we try to cover it up like Adam did. We must confess our sin and let Christ cover it with his blood instead. Christ is able to cover our sin. We do not do a good job covering our sin. We do not cover our sin before God. Our desire to cover our sins keeps us from dealing with them. We refuse to go to Christ as our Savior. Instead, what do we do? We make excuses. We justify what we have done. We refuse to ask others to forgive us. Do the same thing. Excuses. We don't go and say, hey, I sinned. I was wrong. I did you wrong. We resort sometimes to blaming other people for what we did. You know, well, I didn't do wrong. You did this to me. Like Adam when he blamed Eve. And like Eve when she blamed the serpent. It can make us deny that what we have done was even sinful at all. We maybe give it another name. You know, we'll, we'll, call it, uh, we'll call it alcoholism instead of drunkenness. You know, that, that kind of a thing. It's, oh, it's not sin. It's just, a, it's just a sickness that I have. The world doesn't believe in sin. And so they see sinful behavior as disease. That's how they always label it. But the Bible labels it as sin. We can join with those who twist God's word to call evil good and good evil. Or we can begin to head down that path by simply denying, that, not saying that something is sinful. For example, with sexual sin, first we say that the, law, the desire for unlawful sex cannot be helped and is therefore excusable rather than something that we need to turn away from. Then we say that it's excusable for us to practice it because it's unnatural to go against our desires. Then we say that it is a beautiful and a good thing. That's what you have seen with, the, uh, with homosexuality in our society today. It begins from being embarrassed to admit that we have sinned, that we have sinful desires, and then it moves to practicing those things, and then it moves to saying those things are good. See, that's, that's the way the progression goes on. We can wickedly try to hide weaknesses and failures that are not themselves sinful as well. For example, you can be so obsessed with trying to protect yourself from embarrassment that you become reclusive. You don't want to be around other people because you might do something embarrassing. And so you, you avoid other people. Some people do that. Maybe we avoid close friendships. We'll be distant, but we avoid close friendships. Or you avoid marriage because you don't want people to see your weakness. We don't invite people over maybe to our homes because we're embarrassed. Maybe we're embarrassed that, hey, I can't afford a nicer place. I can't have anybody over to this place. You know, I don't want them to see how little I have. Or maybe because we're not good decorators or we're not good at keeping things tidy. And so we won't have fellowship with people because of embarrassment or because we're not so good at making conversation. Maybe we make a lot of social blunders. So I'm just going to avoid I'm going to avoid everybody. I'm not going to reach out to anyone. Maybe we don't reach out to strangers because we're afraid that they might think badly about us or that they might, we might not have something to say to them. It can keep us from pursuing our calling as well. 
we don't want to train, maybe go to you know, uh, university or, or some other kind of training that we need for the kind of work that maybe is actually a calling that would be appropriate for us because we're afraid that we might fail. Oh, I don't know. It might be too hard. And I'd be, you'd be so embarrassed if you didn't do well. You know, like the guy in the parable that buried his talent because he was afraid that something might go wrong if he invested in it. We don't want to take a harder job because we might look bad if we don't perform well, if we don't get, on, get up to speed with it. It'll take us a while to get up to speed. We don't want to go through that process. We don't want to step out and run a business because what if we failed? And it's not just that we're worried about, you know, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a little bit of a financial loss or something, but we're, we're just worried about the embarrassment. And so we just kind of live in a mediocre way in our calling. We don't want to speak in public because we might say something wrong. We might embarrass ourselves. I, uh, I, was, I think I've told you before that um, I told the guy that asked me to come up to Canada and help him with the campus ministry initially that, that now you've got to understand I cannot speak in public. I, could never, I can't do that. I can never do that. And, uh, you know, we can't... We can't I was, I was setting my calling based on not wanting to be embarrassed. It can make us lie. We can lie about mistakes that we made because we want to cover them up. Somebody said, did you do that? Oh, no, I, no, I didn't do that. You know, we, we, we lie to people. In some cases, this can even become fatal to other people. For example, suppose, suppose there's a guy that has a job that he inspects airplanes before they fly. Go through a checklist and check off different things. And maybe he was goofing off and didn't really get all his work done, but he's embarrassed to admit that. And so he just you know, checks things off and signs it and hands and the plane isn't safe. People die because the guy was embarrassed. He didn't want to say, hey, I, I'm sorry, I've got to go back and do this again. I know it's going to be late, but I, I didn't really get through the process. I, I got distracted. I need, to, I need to come clean on that. It can cause us to make excuses about why we were late or to exaggerate about our performance in school or about how busy we are and how sick we are, lest our laziness be exposed. I heard about a student, that, this is one that Jay Adams counseled, that he was, the student was all messed up. He was in a mental institution, the whole works, and came to find out that he was a student. His parents had sent him to university, and he'd been goofing off, and so then he feigned um, mental illness in order to, like, because he was going to fail, he got out of school and got, got in a mental institution, and uh, <laughs> he finally repented when, uh, when he was exposed and confronted and uh, admitted that, yeah, I was just goofing off and I didn't want to admit that. Inordinate embarrassment can also make us warped. We can, uh, we can develop obsessive behaviors in an effort to make sure that we don't make a mistake or that we don't look bad in some trivial matters. Sometimes people think that somebody is just twisted just because they're wired up that way, when in fact, almost always, not always, but almost always, they're twisted because they're trying to avoid something, they're, trying to, they're dodging something, they're resisting something. You know, like a woman who spends hours trying to get her hair just right before she goes out. Or the man that won't go out because he's got a scratch on his car or something. He doesn't want anybody to see his car with a scratch on it. And he's always like 
like fussing and festering and, and, and carrying on, and he's paralyzed. He doesn't, he doesn't do things. And you say, oh, you know, what's wrong with that guy? Um, they can become critical, controlling and manipulative toward other people. We're harsh with other people that maybe are interfering with the way they, they want things to be set. Nervous. Maybe they're overly apologetic, or maybe they're never willing to admit a fault. They can become anxious and fearful. You can become paralyzed. If they are parents, what is a parent like, like in that situation? A parent like that is more concerned about their children embarrassing them than they are about their children really being godly and knowing the Lord. And so their discipline comes off in a very harsh way because they don't really care about the child and uh, they're just very difficult and hard to deal with. And th- those kind of things are, are you know, so, so very common. With, and it all comes out from not wanting to be embarrassed. Or husbands and wives, they can be embarrassed by each other. I don't, you know, a wife can be very critical of her husband because he embarrasses her in some of the things he does. Or vice versa. Inordinate embarrassment can keep us from getting the help that we need as well. We, we joke about how uh, men a lot of times are too proud to ask for directions. Of course, we generally have our GPS now that we can use. But when I was, when I was younger, before we had those, it was a joke. You know, men won't ever ask for, for directions. They'd be totally lost in the city. Oh, no, 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 I don't know where. You know, they're trying to, trying to figure it out. But that can become a more serious thing, can't it? If there's something in your life that's really messed up and you don't want, you're embarrassed, you don't want to get any help, can cause real problems. We need to admit when we don't know something instead of pretending like we do. You know, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I know what to do. That could become a problem too. Like we're talking about the guy inspecting the plane or something. He wants to act like he's competent. He doesn't really know what he's doing, so he pretends. No, get over your embarrassment. Don't want to admit it. Women also can pretend that they have everything together when, in fact, their life is falling apart. You know, so you, see, you see that a lot of times. You know, they have all the, the pictures up on and, and Facebook or whatever, and then, you know, you go talk to them and everything. Oh, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, it's just terrible. And all these smiling pictures, you know. Like, what, what is going on there? Um, not that we have to air our laundry to everyone, but sometimes people won't really acknowledge to anyone to get the help that they need. So, yeah, okay, embarrassment, it can cause all kinds of problems. I trust that I've convinced you <laughs> that that is the case. Now it's time to turn to part two, the second part of the, the sermon topic. What can we do about embarrassment? From the outset, I want to say that what you do about embarrassment, of course, has very much to do with what caused the embarrassment. Because there is a radical difference in what to do about embarrassment because of sin and embarrassment about other matters. If you're embarrassed because of sin, then what do you need to do? You need to go to Jesus Christ. I keep going back lately to what we learned in Hebrews and what I reviewed with you this morning, what we learned a few weeks ago where it talks about Jesus being our high priest. You know, that we have such a priest as he. A high priest who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has all authority. We ought to come to that priest in our time of need. He can give us grace to overcome our sin. He has overcome all temptation himself. He never gave way to it. 
He has conquered Satan. He has overcome the world. And he is ready and able to help us. He can help us not only with counsel from his word. He can also help us by giving us grace to be able to obey and to follow him. Not only that, but he is also a high priest who connects us with God. He is the sanctuary, the meeting place where in him we meet our God and we know our God and we live in communion with our God. Outside of Christ, we're estranged from him. We're outside the sanctuary. He brings us into a loving relationship so that we love God. We love his ways. We worship him with sincere devotion. And not only that, but he is the priest who has an offering that is able to cover for our sins. Very important when you're talking about shame and embarrassment. When you come confessing your sin, bear that embarrassment and that shame, then he is ready and able to forgive us. Understand that sin then is something that you ought to be embarrassed about. Ezekiel says that when we see our sin before God, that we will and and we see the mercies that he offers to his people, then we'll loathe ourselves for the way that we have lived. We'll 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 say that was loathsome. In Romans six, Paul says that we look back at the things we did before and we're ashamed of those things. We ought to be ashamed of them. That's a sign of grace. Grace makes us ashamed of our sin. So that we seek our Savior. Jeremiah tells us how perverted we are when we're not ashamed about our sins. That was one of the problems Jeremiah had in his ministry. The people weren't ashamed about, oh, God, God's not going to punish us. We're, we're okay. You know, it's okay. He repeats these words, actually, they're in Jeremiah 6.15. And then again in Jeremiah 8.12. So if I read Jeremiah 6.15 and then Jeremiah 8.12, it would be exactly the same words. Here are the words. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. This is not an interesting statement. They were impudent and hardened. They couldn't blush when they had done wrong. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I will punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Instead of in any way then denying or excusing your sin, simply come to your Savior. Say, I did wrong. I sinned. Confess your sin. All of it. And ask Him to help you. Don't just superficially confess it. Go to the depths of it. Look at the motives. Look at the bad attitudes. Look at the whole thing. And ask Him to cleanse you from your sin. You should also confess your sin to others. You must do this if you have sinned against them. In Matthew 5.24, Jesus said, If you know that you've sinned against your brother, don't even go on with your worship until you have first gone to be reconciled with your brother. Husbands and wives, don't let the sun go down without first asking your spouse to forgive you. Why would you let sin fester? I preached on that some time ago. I think it was maybe a catechism sermon or something like that about how that, you know, you get this whole room full of all this garbage that's sitting there because you never took the garbage out. When you don't confess your sin, you don't come and remove it. The wrongs that you've done, you just leave them all over the floor in the house and the relationship and they're, they pile up and you're dodging around all this smelly garbage and you're not going to get along very well in that kind of a situation. Too proud 
to admit that you did anything wrong. It will overtake you and ultimately it will destroy your relationship. Maybe you can think of something even right now that, that you really should deal with, that you know you sinned against somebody and you know you really need to, you need to go and make some things right. And if you're struggling with recurring sin, confess your faults to one another, the scripture says. Ask your pastor or elder or Christian friend to pray for you. Ask them to help you. Don't be, don't be embarrassed in a wrong way. See, it's right to be embarrassed about sin, but don't be inordinately embarrassed so that you won't go in and look for help. You might not want to, uh, you know, because sin is, is something that you are rightly ashamed of. The principle is you ought to be more ashamed of living that way before the holy God than you are about letting other people know about it that can help you. Like, what should cause you the greater shame? What you are before God. So you come to get help when you need it. You don't have to broadcast all over the world about whatever is wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. But get help from those who love you. And children, let me tell you, this is an important thing for you with your, with your parents and stuff. You know, if your parents, if, if you come to them when you, if you really have something that's going wrong that you're struggling with in a sinful way, and you come and talk to your parents about it, it it's, they're not going to be upset with you unless they're really messed up parents. <laughs> they're going to be glad and they're going to want to help you because you're coming for help and they know that you're sincere and honest. It's when you're sneaking around and hiding and there's all this stuff going on. And maybe you're actually struggling with it. You're having a hard time with it. And you're trying to change, but you can't. Come and talk to them about it. Don't just go on with it. Deal with it. It's very important. And uh, this, this is something that, uh, that, that, that God wants us to do. Sin is shameful, but because it is, then you should get the help that you need so that you can, you can be delivered from it. It could be, you know, Problem with drugs, alcohol, stealing, lying, bitterness, procrastination. It could be anything. So I say again, you ought to be embarrassed about sin. But what you're to do when you're in ordinary, but, but, but now we're going to move on to look at things that are not sinful. So that was things that are sinful and how we deal with that. How do we deal with things that are not sinful? When you're inordinately embarrassed about things that are not sinful, you need to deal with your pride. There is a sense in which you need to learn to laugh at yourself and at your blunders and your inabilities, too. Suppose you find out that you have been walking around, you know, at the airport and you have a string of toilet paper hanging out the back of your pants that's dragging along behind you and you've been all over the place and you even saw some people that you knew and you spoke to them and you're walking around and then, you know, oh, you know, uh, you're all embarrassed. Should you have a meltdown? No, you should laugh. <laughs> that's something to laugh about. You, you're a fallen creature in a fallen world and you're going to do stuff like that. What if you're giving a speech and you say something really stupid and you realize it afterwards, you say, oh, I could never, I could never do that again. Oh, you laugh. Yeah, you said something stupid. It's funny. Just, just have a laugh about it and get on with your life. You don't need to melt down, decide that I can never do that again. What is the real problem here? The real problem is that your priorities are out of line. 
you're overly concerned about yourself and how you're coming across. Get over it. You're a fallen creature in a fallen world, and you're going to do things like that. Jesus told us that we're to deny ourselves. John the Baptist got right to it. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm not here to try to look good to everybody. That's not my purpose, to increase. My purpose is to exalt Jesus Christ. And if it makes me look worse to exalt him, because I'm going to be talking about my sin, stuff like that, then so be it. He realized it was far more important that people honored Jesus than that they honored him. His disciples were kind of getting offended. Jesus' disciples, they're baptized more people than you. He said, good, good. What did Jesus tell us about our priorities? When it comes to sin, he said, Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than that your whole body should be cast into hell. But what did he say when it comes to your life? Jesus said, Matthew 6, 25 and 33, the ordinary things of your life. He said, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't be all worried about your life, what you look like, how you're coming across, what you wear, what you eat, what you, all, all this kind of stuff. Don't be worried about that. Be worried about God's kingdom. Perhaps you're going to tell me that you can't get over yourself because your parents couldn't get over you. You know what I mean by that? They were so embarrassed about your failures that now you can't help but be embarrassed about them. So whenever you fail, you've got this echo of like, you're so stupid. Look at what you did again. You know, this, the, the berating kind of, do you know what you're doing? You're denying your sin. You're making excuses to deny your sin. I don't say that your parents didn't sin, that they didn't have a very sinful attitude, but you're not bound by your parents' sin. If you have embraced this sin, okay, of an over-importance about yourself and what you look like and what other people think of you, you say, well, my parents, yeah, but it's your sin now because you embrace that sin. And don't look at it and say, oh, but I'm a victim. No, look at it and say, I'm a sinful person. That's why I, I embrace this sin in my life. That's why I responded like that. Confess it and forsake it. Need I tell you again that we have a high priest? A high priest who is willing and able to forgive us of our sins and to help us to change? So I go to him with that problem. Say, oh, but I'm having a hard time shaking. Of course you are. We all have a hard time shaking different sins. But you don't say, oh, well, then that's not a sin. Oh, it's their fault. No, it's your sin. It's your fault. Yeah, somebody else contributed to it. But ultimately, any sin that you have is your own doing. And you go and confess that and deal with it. Die with Christ in order that you might live. Instead of making excuses because your, your pride and your preoccupation about, uh, about your pride and your preoccupation with how you appear to others, you need to see how perverted it is for you to think so highly of yourself when you have a glorious creator who dwells in glory. That's the sin. I am so important that how I come across is more important than anything else. That is a perversion. You have a glorious creator. He is the one who is important. What makes you think you are? Come to Christ. Go to the cross with that sin. Die with him. 
in order that you might live with him. Let's be clear, though. There are often things that you should be ashamed of when you blunder, too. Okay? So blunder, it's not so simple as just like, these things are sinful, these things are not at all. No, when you blunder, sometimes repent of it if your blunder was due to slackness in your work or due to carelessness or due to half-heartedness. Like you didn't, you were to do our work hardly as unto the Lord. If, you know, if, if you failed, if, if, you just, if you decided to take a rocket science course and you got into it and you failed because you weren't capable or you took a basket weaving course and you tried that and you were not capable of basket weaving, your hands just don't work right, you can't, you can't make it happen, God did not call you in that case to be a rocket scientist or a basket weaver. So laugh about it and move on. Say, oh man, I tried that. There's no, I could, there's no way I could do that. Instead of you know, getting all, all flustered and stuff. Maybe you find that you're not... I mean, let's, let's go really to the depth here. Maybe you find out you're not very good at anything. Maybe it's true. It's okay. It's okay if you're not good at anything. Love God and do the best you can with whatever you have, whatever he gave you. Be glad with whatever he gave you. And be glad that you don't have all the responsibility that goes with being super talented. If you only have a tenth as much ability, you only have a tenth as much responsibility. If you got, you're better off to, to make use of whatever ability you've been given fully than to have more ability and only use it partly. And that's what usually happens with people that have lots of ability. Get your priorities straight. You're here for God. You're here to serve God. He doesn't give us all the same gifts. He gave us what he wants us to have to glorify him. If you're not so socially able or so intellectually able or so physically able or so attractive or so talented or whatever, it's okay. It's okay. Serve God. Glorify God. That's why you're here. You know what the funny thing is? It seems like the people that have the hardest time dealing with their failures are the people who are way up there. Everybody's looking at them and say, that's a failure. <laughs> that doesn't look like a failure to me. Like I'm down here <laughs> working around and they call that a failure and they get all upset about it. What's the problem there? You almost get the impression that they're kind of competing with God. You know, like they don't want to have, I don't make any mistakes. I don't ever do anything that goes wrong. Well, who do you think you are? Wow. I mean, that's just incredible. You're, you're, you're a creature, a fallen creature in a fallen world. Get used to it. One more thing that I want to address. What should you do if someone is deliberately trying to embarrass you? How do we deal with that? You know, there's a way in which there, there's something very twisted in us as fallen creatures that I think we all struggle with in various ways. It's very wicked. We find pleasure in exposing other people's faults and shaming, embarrassing other people. To make matters even worse, the more skilled and competent people are, the more we want to make their faults known. And here's the worst one. The more godly another person is, the more we relish finding something wrong that we can bring to light, that we can exaggerate, we can even fabricate. Oh, I heard something about so-and-so. 
Oh, did you hear it? Will you hear what they did? Is that not how Jesus was treated when he came? Jesus did not sin. And everybody wanted to find something that he did that was sinful. They were eager. As soon as there was any rumor or anything, anything that they thought was sinful, they were, they were on to it right away. That's what they were looking for. How happy his enemies were to see him brought to the place of shame. We knew that he was a wicked man. If he was from God, he wouldn't be on the cross. We knew, we knew all along. They see him bearing our curse, cut off from God for our transgressions. And they're jeering. The earth is jeering from below and heaven is shut up from above with darkness when he's on the cross and people are rejoicing. Because finally, this one that kept exposing us just because he was holy, now he is exposed, they say. And of course, he was bearing our transgressions, wasn't he? What can you do? Well, if the faults uh, other people are exposing in you, like somebody that enjoys exposing you, if they're real, the things that they expose, just embrace it. You know, if if it is something stupid that you did and they're bringing it to light, say, yeah, that was so stupid. Ha, ha, ha. Like, don't worry about it. Don't get all bent out of shape. If it was for sin that you committed, you can say, yes, that was so sinful. It's worse than you think it then, then neither you or I think it is. I'm so thankful that I have a Savior that can help me change. Because if I, had to, if I had to take that before Him without forgiveness, I would be utterly condemned. If the faults are fabricated, or made up, you can do what Jesus did. John 18, 23. If I have spoken evil, He said, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Or John 10, 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? Now you, can, you can say something like that. Like Paul, though, what you need to learn underlying, I, I use this verse with people a lot. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Paul was being criticized by the Corinthians, various ones of them, various parties. They're divided up into different sects, and they were, were critical, very critical of Paul. He said, but with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. They were fabricating things about Paul. He said, yeah, you know, I don't really care what you guys' judgment is. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. I don't even see the half of it. For I know nothing against myself. Paul always tried to maintain a clear conscience. He did. He said, I don't know of something wrong that I am doing. He says, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. So what matters is not what people say about you, but it's what the Lord thinks about you. He is the only judge that matters. Warning. That's not to be used in a, proudful, in a prideful way. You sometimes meet with people that will say, like, they are doing things that are shameful, and they are doing things that are wrong, and they say, oh, people are judging me. And they say, but God knows Right, right? And it, yeah, God knows that what you did, He thinks what you did is worse than the other people think it is if you're sinning against Him. That's why you need a Savior. 
That's why you go to Jesus Christ. You don't go and say, oh, well, God, God knows that my heart's really good. Your heart's not really good if you're doing wicked, sinful things. Your heart's bad. Our, all of us have bad hearts. That's why we sin. That's why we need a Savior. So don't go there with this. But you go there with this if somebody is fabricating things and saying you're doing something that's wrong when you're not. Then you say, you, you know, whatever you're judging it's not a big deal. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't carry any weight. The, the only ones whose judgment matters is God's. So let's conclude with, these wonder, with some wonderful thoughts about our Lord Jesus. Why did our Lord Jesus come into this world? One way you can look at it is that he came into this world to bear our shame and our guilt. We were guilty and in a condition of shame before the fathers from which we could not extricate ourselves. We could not atone for our sin. We couldn't provide for it. And he came and said, give that to me. I'll bear that. I'll bear that for them. And he went to the cross. Like I said before, he was, heaven was shut off from above with the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Earth from below. You're an ungodly man. Look at what you did. He was bearing our sin. He took it. He took responsibility for it. And he went there and he said, punish me for what they did. Let it all, let it, put it all on my account. I'll, I'll cover it all. And that's what he did. He bore our sin. A surety. Remember that word? That's someone that takes your place and says, I'll take responsibility for that wrong that this one did. This is what the Bible means when it says that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. Or when it says that all of our iniquities were laid on him in Isaiah. Or when it says that he bore our transgressions. As the one who is more embarrassed and more ashamed by our sin than we who committed it can even fathom, he willingly represented us before the Father so that he was bruised, punished for our iniquities. Considering what he so graciously did to help us to deal, should help us to deal with our embarrassment. It helps us to see that we ought to be more ashamed about our sin so that we loathe ourselves, realizing that we're worse than we think before God. If we have the right attitude in Christ about that and really humble ourselves, we won't be beaten down by facing our shame. We'll be lifted up as those who are forgiven. We come before God confessing our sin humbly before Him and looking to Him for sal- the salvation that He has provided. We will be elevated, lifted up, and blessed. We will rejoice in Jesus Christ and we will look to Him to change us and to deliver us from this body of death. Seeing our Savior's willingness to bear our shame also helps us to see how petty we are when we get all distressed and embarrassed about things that, like the trivial things I was talking about before, mistakes that we make or inabilities that we have or or whatever it might be. It helps us to get over ourselves when we see the glory of our Master. Please stand and let's call on His name. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the things that you have revealed to us in your word about shame and embarrassment. We thank you, O Lord, that there is help for us in your word.
we see that embarrassment and shame it can be a very, very destructive thing. It can be misused. It can, it can be, become a, a, a great problem, how we handle it, how we deal with it. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us, that we would deal with these things in a godly way. We thank you that when it comes to our, the things that we really ought to be ashamed of, our sin and our transgression before you, when we deal with those, that we can deal with those things because we have the Savior who said, I will take your shame. I will bear your guilt. And he has done this, and we are set free. We pray that we would rejoice, Lord, because we're unworthy of the least of your mercies, and yet your mercy comes out like a flood. We thank you for that. We also pray, Lord, regarding those things, our foibles, the things that we do that are just you know blunders, silly things that we maybe fall into or do. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be all worked up about that. Or if we are not happy about our, our looks or our personality or, or whatever it is, we can still shine as a light for you, Lord. We're here not because we have some kind of great ability. We're here as those who are set to glorify you. And we thank you that sometimes it is those who have the least ability and talent and looks and all the rest of, of all that are the ones that bring the most glory and honor to you and the ones that will be the most richly rewarded in the day when we appear before you. And we pray, Lord, that we would remember what matters and we would not focus on what doesn't matter, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that we would not seek our own elevation in our own status, in our own glory. If we try to glorify ourselves, we're going to be very, very disappointed because we really don't have that much to, to show. But if we're going to glorify our God, then we'll never get to the end of it. There's always more. We never have glorified you enough. There's always more. Father, the lie is found out if we try to glorify ourselves. But if we glorify you, there's no lie in that. And we pray, Lord, that we would live in the truth and not in lies. Help us, Lord, for you are our God and you are our Redeemer, and we certainly do need a lot of help. We acknowledge that. We confess that. We come to you, Lord, asking you, help us, O Lord. Deliver us. Deliver us from our sin. And help us to walk uprightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the blessing of our Lord. Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.